Hello, you are listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. We record the real-life memories and perspectives of those who experience the history of Carnegie Mellon University. And this season, we're looking at Steel City Outsiders and the Institutional Avant-Garde. Or, or the story of how Oakland, our neighborhood in Pittsburgh, emerged as an unlikely center for avant-garde and experimental arts in the 1970s. So this season, we are diving into stories about how this happened, as told by the people who were actually there. They're stories about starting something new, about not necessarily having a plan, but finding a way to do it anyway. These are stories about finding belonging and community and forging new creative forms. We are talking about avant-garde film. We're talking about punk. We're talking about electronic art. We're talking about how computers changed art and music and arts communities themselves. If you've been with us since the first episode of the season, then you know that we ended episode one with a cliffhanger. Yeah, that's right. And here we are, five episodes later, finally ready to resolve the mystery. As some of you may know, I've resigned from my job with the film section at the Museum of Art and have been succeeded by Bill Judson. That's Sally Dixon, founder of the film section at the Carnegie Museum of Art. Sally Dixon and Bill Judson recorded this conversation for the WQED radio station on August 1st, 1975. Bill and his wife, Bay, and their children, Tasha and Benjamin, came to Pittsburgh about two and a half years ago, where both Bill and Bay have been actively engaged in the arts in Pittsburgh. Bay is an artist herself, and Bill has been an instructor at the Department of Fine Arts at the University of Pittsburgh, where he's been responsible for establishing film as a serious area of academic study by instituting and developing courses in film history and theory. He's also served as first director of the film studies program at the University of Pittsburgh. And at present, he's active as the president and founding member of the Regional Film Council of Pittsburgh. The council's designed to coordinate non-commercial film activities in the area and will ultimately include a repository of films for use by students in the public. But we're not going to talk about that today. I want to get into some of the ideas for the development of the film section from this point on. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Sally. Um, I should begin, certainly, by, uh, by thanking you for what's been an, an extraordinary job that you've done with the film section during the past five and a half years. Uh, uh, beginning with a very, very modest program, you've developed it into one that uh, is known across this country. Um, for a variety of, of programs that you've established, and it has it has clearly a national reputation. It's known for uh, for its quality uh, in in film centers across the United States, and I think you deserve a, a very strong commendation for the job that that you've done. The program will miss you. Uh, it will be exciting uh, to, to be pick thrilling. up where, where you've left off, but um, uh, many many people have have expressed their sorrow that that you're leaving. Well, um, I have loved the you. job. I have loved every minute of it, for the most part. There's been a lot of hard work, but it's uh, some of the richest years of my life were in this job, and I trust it will be the same for you. I can't see how it cannot be. There's such variety, and just your ideas for development well, uh, are exciting to me and, and won't lure me well, back, but, well, <laughs> but I'm going to watch with great care and, and great interest. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. The... Um, 
the, the program as it, as it will um, take place this fall will not be certainly perceptibly different, I don't think, from what it's been. <laughs> the transition from Sally Dixon to Bill Judson was very smooth. They were friends, and they shared similar core principles about what the program should be. But they did have different styles. But there was a, a noticeable shift in style from Sally to Bill Judson. That's Brady Lewis, longtime educator and filmmaker at Pittsburgh Filmmakers. Well, I think Sally was more casual, more inviting, and Bill particularly at the beginning came off as a more of an academic. It took a little longer to get to know Bill and to get comfortable with Bill, where Sally was somebody who you felt comfortable with almost immediately, I would say. That was, that was the difference that was apparent to me. Bill was also a big champion of filmmakers and did a lot for filmmakers. He just had, he had a different style, did it in a different way. Bob Gaylor, artist, filmmaker, designer, and former president of Pittsburgh Filmmakers, echoes a similar sentiment. So when Sally left, I think there was a, a, you know, a vacuum from her and her congeniality and vivacious nature and her always uh, giving a spirit. She was, she was completely generous. Not that Bill wasn't generous. He just did, he wasn't that person. You know, he was, he was Bill, the guy in the gray suit. So once Bill Judson settled into the job, he was able to expand the scope of the program. And Ben Ogrodnik, an assistant professor at Del Mar College, gave us a little background on Bill Judson and what he did with the film section. Bill Judson came from an Ivy League education. He was interested in modern painting. Uh, He was interested in Cubist paintings by Ferdinand Leger. She convinced Bill Judson to take over the job. And Bill was initially concerned that it would be too political. You know, he heard kind of stories about how you have to be very careful and savvy with playing politics in a museum, especially when you're representing a relatively new art form like film, right? To this day, there are lots of people who think film's place is just in the kind of entertainment uh, multiplex, right? It has no deeper meaning than than superhero franchises or something, which are great, don't get me wrong. But she managed to convince him, and he ended up being an amazingly good fit for the role because he brought an academic expertise. He was very... Um, politically savvy with the movers and shakers at the museum. He expanded the exhibition series toward being more international in perspective. So he had many more foreign filmmakers visit Pittsburgh. Some of the foreign filmmakers included Werner Herzog. Welcome, Werner Herzog. Thank you very much. Thank you. Madeleine Maltite Meliers. So, with no further ado, Madame Maltite Meliers, welcome. Merci, bonsoir à tous, et merci d'être venu ce soir malgré la pluie pour voir les films. Marcel Ophuls. So, it's my great pleasure to welcome Marcel Ophuls. And Christo. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm sure there's no need this evening for a lengthy or, or formal introduction to this, to this Christo event. 
There are, however, a couple of things that uh, I think do need to be said before we begin. First, I'd like to share a rumor with you. I understand that as we sit here at this very moment, three large trucks carrying a very uh, durable synthetic fiber have, have pulled up just outside the door and they're beginning to unload. We don't know yet what they're doing, but we'll find out soon enough. For those not in on the joke, Christo and his wife, Jean-Claude, did large-scale art installations, often covering landscapes or bridges in giant sheets of fabric. Christo, welcome. I like to only give some uh, back. Um. Okay, back to Ben Ogrodnik. So he took over in 19, late 1975, early 1976, and ran the program until 2003. He also started the video art component of the film section. He started a study center in 1976, which basically enabled artists and researchers to study films that uh, were part of the collection of the Carnegie Museum of Art. So he, he really um, continued in the spirit that Sally set up. And from 1975 to 2003, Bill Judson oversaw major changes to the way film was treated within the museum context. Film and video wandered out of the screening room and took up space in the galleries. So the first video pieces purchased by Carnegie Museum of Art and put on display in the galleries arrived in about 1981. It was three works by Buki Schwartz. And Bill Judson continued to collect video pieces. In an essay for the museum's storyboard publication, Tess Takahashi wrote that Bill Judson hosted seven artist video installations from 1981 to 1988, including work by Mary Lussier, Stena Vasulka, Dara Birnbaum, and Bill Viola. So these weren't just videos playing on the walls of the gallery. These were installation pieces, some of them very large scale. There were also traveling shows that would go to multiple museums and organizations. And in 1985, Judson wrote that a primary concern of his department was to promote the understanding of film and video as art forms and of film and video makers as artists. And it wasn't just Carnegie Museum of Art that was showing video in the galleries. Over time, it started to become an accepted art forum in museums across the country and across the globe. And that acceptance extends to new media works utilizing computers and even video games. Jason Gibbs, who was a musicology PhD candidate at the University of Pittsburgh, remembers a number of the video works that Bill Judson programmed at the museum. Did you go to some of uh, Bill Judson's uh, film screenings? Yeah, I did. Um, the very memorable one was he uh, presented um, Perfect Lives, Private Parts by uh, Robert Ashley, which at that time was really difficult to have an opportunity to experience. I mean, it, it was released on VHS and DVD later on, but that was uh, really a very memorable experience. You know, it, it, it goes on for over two hours and, and it just takes you into this other world. The other thing that he did is he had a, the, the museum gave him like a little corner where he would have these rotating exhibitions, displays of video art. So you would just go in there and park yourself and watch these pieces 
and you know they'd be on a loop and you could wait until something came back around again and, and just saw a lot of interesting things that, that I don't remember who did it, but there was this really interesting piece about uh, Paganini, this video art piece that, that was really striking. Um, Bill Viola's work. I remember seeing, he also showed the um, residents little one minute movies from the commercial album. It was on you know, the Forbes Avenue side of the museum. There was just this darkened space where there was always some sort of a video installation going on, and that was Bill Johnson. If I can indulge in a bit of nostalgia, Bill's programming was the first time that I saw foreign films from certain eras. I vividly remember being enthralled with Michelangelo Antonioni's Red Desert. Also, while it isn't my favorite Fellini film, I saw Juliet of the Spirits. I believe both films were part of a series on Italian cinema. So this film program was actually one of the reasons that I was so excited to attend CMU as an undergrad. And its cancellation in 2003 was a major disappointment. I'm still bummed out about it. And when they um, eliminated the uh, program at the uh, Museum of Art, that was just stunning to everyone. And not just in Pittsburgh, all across the country, people were just scratching their heads. How could a major museum uh, that had such a reputation with its film program, how could it, how could it eliminate such an important program and, and kind of diminish its own reputation just overnight like that. Nobody ever completely was sure why they did that. So the museum announced that the department was closing in 2002. They had plans to transfer the film and video programming to its contemporary art department, officially dissolving the film section as of 2003. Bill Judson and his assistants left the museum and audiences turned elsewhere, like Pittsburgh filmmakers, for screenings. That's not entirely the end of the story, though. So back in 2014, I was part of a group working at the museum to excavate the film collection and the archival material left behind by the film section. Sally Dixon and Bill Judson amassed an impressive collection of more than 800 titles that are shown in the galleries today and our team digitized many of the archival documents and posters telling the history of the film section. So if you want to explore the archive for yourself and learn more about this history, the website is still publicly available. Visit it at records.cmoa.org. Yeah, the website is a great resource, and I was very lucky to interview Maria Paul Kiros, who actually designed many of the film posters in the archive. Ah, those posters are beautiful. And when I worked at the museum, I always wondered who designed them. Should we tell the story of how those came about? Yeah, and to tell that story, let's walk up Forbes Avenue to Carnegie Mellon. In the early 1970s, 1971 to 1974 to be specific, graphic designer Dennis Ichiyama was teaching at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah, Ichiyama taught graphic design, and he specialized in woodblock prints. And while teaching, he started something called the Design Publication Department at the university. And that's where I got a jump start on so many things, because my professor at the time was a gentleman named Dennis Ichiyama, an amazing guy. That's Maria Paul Kiros. Maria studied graphic design at CMU. And he 
took me under his wing and he created the design publication department within the design department so that any of the other colleges within CMU who needed a brochure or a poster or a logo or an announcement card or an invitation would come to us and we would design it. And since I was the the senior that had the most amount of time, I was given a lot of these projects right off the bat. Maria's oral history interview is full of fun details that explain what life as an art student at CMU in the 1970s was like, like this one. There was one professor, I'm sorry I'm going to forget his name, but he stood in the park on Flagstaff Hill every day and would rotate every 15 minutes to get a full body tan. So he had a tan all year long. He had grayish, whitish hair. I will remember his name if it kills me. Um, Very cool guy. Also this one, which shows that there was a bit of a Buckminster Fuller influence on campus. Half of the freshman year, we created a geodesic dome. So in 1971, we're making a geodesic dome. We cut out all the shapes, all the triangles, and we ironed them, and we sewed them, and we inflated it a couple of different times. And um, that was, I think the whole university thought we were nuts. I mean, because they would watch us doing this stuff, and they thought we were crazy. And, And you could fit at least 25 people in our dome. It was not small, and it looked like a big igloo. So in our interview, Maria says that she was able to finish most of her studies in three years. And she spent her senior year working on an independent project, which often consisted of design projects for the design publication department. Because Carnegie Mellon was expensive, Pitt would have been free, Carnegie Mellon would not have been free. I took night classes. I basically went to school as much as I could and finished most of my requirements in, a th- in the three years as opposed to the fourth year. And my fourth year CMU requirement was that you took a senior independent project, and that was only completed in your senior year. And since I was the, the senior that had the most amount of time, I was given a lot of these projects right off the bat, and, and because I needed to fill my requirements. So that's how I sort of had a more built-up portfolio to show potential employers. Um, because I had a number of published pieces. Like a writer, one needs to have a published book or a, uh, in order to get some credence and some, you know, you're good. So I did have a lot of those. Around this time, Ichiyama was designing posters for the film section, along with organizations like Three Rivers Arts Festival. And he passed along some of those jobs to Maria. Posters seemed to be the way you would announce something to an audience, to a prospective group of people who may want to go to something, um, and small brochures. He knew the film department people at the Carnegie Museum because he was, CMU was where people went in the city to, to get art, to get a poster. He knew Babs Widows. I'm sorry, that was another person that influenced my life. Babs Widows was the head of the Three Rivers Arts Festival. It's in its 50th year or whatnot, where she came to Dennis and asked him to design the posters for the Three Rivers Arts Festival because that's how you announce things. You put posters all over the place and and they would be in storefront windows. They would be uh, stapled to um, telephone poles, right? Thank you. And so he would do those because they were a commission piece for him and they were important for his own particular growth. And on occasion, he let me create one of the posters. And this worked out well because once Ichiyama left Pittsburgh in 1974, 
Maria took over the job of designing many of the posters and brochures for Ichiyama's clients, including the film section. I was never their employee, but I spent a lot of time there and I was given offices there. So again, that was my freelance job uh, along with other jobs. Uh, I think I began with this senior project with Dennis Ichiyama at CMU and made inroads into the film department and the Carnegie Museum and did some freebies or did some things at prices that were, you know, just minimal because I needed the portfolio piece. I needed to say that, you know, Carnegie Museum was my client. And I think just because we liked each other. And the lady that was working the PR department then was Mary Kay Poppenberg. And I think it was nice to have another female along. Um, She was Italian. I'm Greek. So I think that probably helped a little bit. So today, if you want to design a poster, you might open Adobe Photoshop or Illustrator or some other program like Canva. You might pick out some digital fonts, lay out your text, and add your imagery. This would all be digital, and because it's digital, it's easy to try a variety of options and designs. Yeah, we have a lot of options today. But when Maria was designing the film section posters in the 70s, the process was a little bit more hands-on. So for example, Maria would use a Xerox machine to create overly saturated images. I also, the uh, Xeroxer was my best friend in that you could take an image, a photograph, and Xerox and Xerox and Xerox it, and it would come out sort of stark. Also, to save on printing costs, Maria would limit each poster to two colors. The second color was often made affordable by printing two posters at once. We would create two of the posters at a time so that they would print two up, so we would save on money and printing cost and get a better product because we could use two different inks as opposed to always using one ink. She would lay out text using something called Letraset, which was a set of dry transferable decals of letters and numbers. Oh, I remember those. Yeah, and I think you can still find examples of Letraset type at a store like Michael's or even an art supply store. It was on a film and you put it on a paper and then you would, with a pencil or a, a, a rounded corner, you would rub it and it would then adhere to the paper itself. Because all of these posters weren't done digitally. I would get copy for a poster, the information for the poster, and it would just be a sheet of printed information. So I would then, by hand, with a pencil in the corners, write um, 13 on 16 uh, Helvetica, 26 pikas long. So you would send this information to a typesetter. And typesetters were also associated with printing companies. So they would get it. They would send me back this the, this on the, uh, the Helvetica or the Palatino or the typeface that I had chosen in the exact width of the lettering and the size of the lettering. And I would then cut and paste that onto a board, onto a 116th board that is called a key. That's what you would send to the printer. The key also had a film on top of it because if I wanted this type to remain white, it would have a little piece of tissue over it. And I would say white, reverse, reverse, because this is on a white piece of paper. Reverse it so that the white comes through and you print the orange. And then these, these words I wanted in this gray kind of color. All of that information went to the printer. He translated it. He did his magic. And then they would print these posters. It was not done on a computer. Wow, well that sounds like a process. And in some ways, the design process is much easier today. Yeah, digital and analog processes have their pros and cons. 
But retro posters designed today just don't have that same feel. And the process, to some extent, really dictates design. So in Maria's case, she is limited to two colors, a few images per poster, and a handful of fonts. Yeah, and no mistakes. <laughs> right. No, uh, what do you call it? Control-Z? Nope. No Control-Z. <laughs> And I also wanted to create an image for the film department so that there was a thread of something you would see in each of the posters that looked the same. So essentially, each post contained the same kinds of information, like the filmmaker's name, the film, and the date. Yeah, and it's not that each poster follows the same grid format, but within a poster, you can see how the text sits in balance with the image. We were taught to design things in a grid. because everything could then fit into this grid. It gave an identity to that particular client. So I created this sort of grid format for the film, film department. And Bill was on board with that. He was on board with so many things because he was, I can't say the word progressive isn't, isn't cool. You have to say something like he just, he trusted us. We trusted each other. Maria talked about what influenced her designs. Uh, simplicity. Milton Glaser was a huge influence on, I don't know, on my work, but how I saw things. Once I started to see and understand how he would look at things and to slim things down, take away a lot of the frill, don't get bogged down in all the information, but find the points of information that, are, that need to be expressed. Um, and get those out fast and, and quickly before you lose your audience because you have, what, 30 seconds or 10 seconds of someone's interest before they're going to turn away and look at something else. So you need to get their attention right away. And um, that sort of is the way I create everything. I usually make sure that there's one piece that overrides everything else and then the rest is sort of background, but I want them to see that one thing. And, and make a decision whether they want to approach it or engage with it longer based on that one or that one and a half things that, that I find to be the essence of, of good design or a visual um, attraction. I feel like today posters do not have the same impact. As someone who's been playing in bands for decades, we used to make posters for every show. In the early days of social media, posters were still a main way to communicate that something cool was happening. Yeah, now it would be Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Or TikTok. Or TikTok, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in the 70s, it was probably really important to have those posters. You know, it was how you advertised to audiences. And Maria's posters were really popular, even as art objects themselves. But the posters, I think, speak for themselves, and so and they were coveted. We at one point had to slash the posters because the filmmakers weren't getting the audience that they had become accustomed to getting for their presentations because the posters were disappearing, and we didn't know why. We thought maybe the kids that we had hired to put them up weren't putting them up, but that wasn't the case. They were being taken down as quickly as we were putting them up because they were on everybody's dorm walls or they were they were they were there are people that have come up to me and said I have about seven of your posters because I collected them until you started to slash them I didn't slash them somebody decided to slash them so that they would stay up that is a it's a way of keeping something on a wall isn't it to keep the 
to keep the advertising, because it really is advertising. When we really put it in plain words, what I was doing is I was advertising a product, and the product was a filmmaker. And I tried to do that, which is much dignity and as much visual impact as I could, because I wanted them to be successful. I wanted, and I wanted my posters to be successful. In the Carnegie Museum of Art's Contemporary Wing, there's a poster for John Whitney's films with a message that reads, Don't be selfish. Stealing this poster will deprive others of the chance to see some good films. So the museum used posters to advertise the screenings, but they also promoted film and video art in other ways. Starting with Sally and continuing with Bill, there was an effort to help film and video makers find and book gigs. Yeah, they had something called the Film and Video Makers Travel Sheet to promote screenings and help artists get out-of-town gigs. Yeah, and I can tell you from experience that setting up out-of-town screenings and film tours is a time-intensive process. Ah, did you tour any of your documentaries? Uh, a few times. The longest film tour I did was in 2018. It was three weeks long, which isn't terribly long, but I was screening a documentary about the history of the Mattress Factory Museum, whose activities actually run in parallel with many of the organizations we are discussing in this podcast. What was it like setting up the tour? Did you run into any challenges? I mean, uh, the internet obviously existed, so <laughs> it wasn't too bad. Uh, my friend Kevin Clancy, who's quite a good artist, gave me something called Phonebook 4. It's a publication that lists contact information for arts organizations around the country. So I was able to look for microcinemas and art galleries, and I would send them an email or call them up on the phone and inquire if they'd like to host a screening. The Phonebook 4 sounds somewhat like the travel sheet. Yeah, it must definitely be a descendant of the travel sheet. Well, let's hear about the travel sheet. And to explain it better, we have two guests. Lindsay Maddock is Associate Professor of Library Science at East Carolina University. And Lindsay has been working to digitize the travel sheet. Basically attempting to recreate that database from CMU. So taking all the entries from the travel sheet and then feeding them into a database so that we can better understand how this network formed and how this community formed and how folks moved through this this broad community of, of makers as these, these media art centers emerged. The Travel Sheet, it was a monthly publication that the film section at the Carnegie began producing in 1973. Sally Dixon at the time began to kind of standardize the approach to inviting filmmakers and, and bringing them into these different media centers that would support screening their work and bringing filmmakers in so that they could receive some sort of honorarium to help support um, their craft. The film section really standardized that process and started setting um, minimums for honoraria that influenced other media art centers and tried to provide a more meaningful 
and maybe more sustainable payment, um, recognizing the amount of work that was that was going into the creation of, of film and video art. There's a there's a lot of citations throughout the different discussions to the expense of just trying to purchase film and the, and the cameras, which was the impotence for places like Pittsburgh filmmakers that that equipment could be purchased and then collectively used so that one individual filmmaker wasn't trying to or video maker wasn't trying to take on that expense on their own, given the expense of film stock and and even just the media itself. You've already heard from our other guest. Ben Ogranek is back to fill in some more details. And Sally Dixon was a very caring person. I think she was unique as a curator because of her love for other people. She learned from conversations with artists that visited that they were often living in poverty and they needed to find new ways of, of sustaining their lifestyle so they could continue making work, uh, which had no commercial appeal. So she came up with this idea of a travel sheet, which would essentially allow visiting artists to create a film tour so that when they visited Pittsburgh, they could also go to Buffalo or they could go to Columbus or they could create this, this itinerary of different places and build up their finances that way and also spread their notoriety so that people would want to hire their films or acquire their films. So the travel sheet expanded in scope over the years, and the later issues had a couple of different sections in them. Yeah, there was a section dedicated to institutions. One was for the institutions, and you see everything from places like the Carnegie that were museums that were trying to elevate film as art. The Museum of Modern Art in New York, MoMA, becomes one of the big players. It was also a way to uh, solicit content. So Cineprobe in MoMA or uh, the AFI, if they wanted to do a screening series on women filmmakers, they would announce it in the travel sheet and have their address and information and people would be connected that way. And then you see smaller organizations that were emerging out of this this media art center movement that was trying to establish these organizations in all the regions of the United States. So that section listed the contact information. Another section was dedicated to job postings. It would be a job posting bulletin. So if people were hiring a curator or a uh, cinematography instructor, they could announce job openings. Another section was dedicated to artists. And then any artist could contribute their information. I suspect it started with the folks that were most closely connected with the Carnegie. And you can kind of see that just from the earlier issues of the travel sheet. But artists provided their contact information, either their interest in traveling to different areas across the United States or globally. Um, we, We start to get information about tours in Europe, across North America, and even beyond that um, later on, or any dates that they had already secured. So that gave folks an opportunity to see where those artists were traveling. And if they were going to be somewhere close, they could kind of pull them in and contact the artists and maybe extend that tour a bit. And then there was a section for new film and video work. It would announce, you know, new films by Stan Brackage or uh, Hollis Frampton or Yvonne Rayner. So a lot of folks were self-distributing their, their media and they could advertise that they had new work available. Mm-hmm. 
through my research, I found out actually that some surprising people used the travel sheet in the very early years. We found an entry for Bernard Sanders. Bernie Sanders. In Burlington, Vermont. The uh, Democratic Socialist presidential candidate. One of the students that was working with me said, this, this, this couldn't be, this couldn't be Bernie. And then we did some digging and looked for some papers at the Vermont Historical Society. And lo and behold, there's Bernie Sanders creating political film strips um, in the in the travel sheet uh, in the in the 1970s. So you find some some really interesting surprises because anyone could be a part of the travel sheet if they if they wanted to be. That's something I should add is that it was it was uncurated. Essentially, whatever they they received from the world outside was was published on the page. So it wasn't filtered through the preferences of Bill Judson or his assistants. It was really it was like it was like Craigslist, you know, um, it was <laughs> a perfect representation of what was going on in the film and video worlds. So the travel sheet was largely a success, but it started off small, just a sheet of paper. So the first travel sheet in mid-73 is a single sheet of paper hand-typed front and back. And it grew to be a pretty serious endeavor with a wider audience. But by the time we get to 1987, it is a full tabloid-style publication with advertisements and images. The travel sheet required a lot of staff to collect the information, lay out the publication, publish it, and mail it to subscribers. And at one point, they even hired a part-time editor. And there's an interesting tie-in with Carnegie Mellon. Lindsay found that as the project grew, the database of filmmaker names, addresses, and other information was maintained by Carnegie Mellon, somewhere in the Computation Center. I believe it goes from a set of just paper cards to a database at CMU where all of the records are, you can call through the contracts and the agreements and how to search the database. But CMU was housing the, the database for a long time um, in their data center so that that information could be pulled from a little bit more readily and easily, especially for the subscribers when they were mailing them out at the, at the mid-month each month. Despite its growing scope, eventually the travel sheet ended in 1987. Yeah, if I remember correctly, it became too expensive to print, and so the museum discontinued it. It ended in 1987 under the supervision of Bill Judson because of funding-related issues. And famous artists in the field really lamented the loss of the travel sheet. There's a letter from Carolee Schneeman, who was uh, essentially a performance artist, a painter, a filmmaker, you know, who wrote to Bill Judson personally and said, it, it is such a loss to our community that we don't have this resource anymore to keep in touch with each other. So that's the travel sheet. But Bill and his team continued introducing new programming to the department through complex installations and performance pieces. So the work carried on. So looking back at the first travel sheet, Sally Dixon very clearly states the purpose. 
She says the purpose of this traveled news sheet is to make it possible to more fully utilize filmmakers' tours. And the second edition adds an addendum to this statement. We do not arrange tours. Surely that is a response to an influx of letters and calls. Yeah, it became pretty popular over time. But the goal of the travel sheet was to connect filmmakers with money to support the making and distribution of films. And that goal was a through line throughout everything Sally Dixon instituted at the museum. And Sally really set an example for others. You can see that influence in the volume of film activity that sprouted in Pittsburgh in the coming decades. There was Pittsburgh Filmmakers and other later organizations like Orgon Cinema, Jefferson Presents, and Pittsburgh Sound and Image, all presenting their version of interesting, underknown, and experimental cinema. This episode was written by Catherine and Dave, and Dave made all the music along with the band Waterer. Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. Next time, we'll have our last episode of the season. Yeah, we're going to talk about the punk scene in Pittsburgh in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and how it tied together this constellation of arts activity. So let's get a head start with a tune by Car Sickness, one of the bands that we'll talk about next time. The Oral History Program is funded by the Weibo Foundation and other generous donors. And if you want to help us continue preserving stories like this, consider making a donation to the Oral History Program at library.cmu.edu slash oralhistory. Also, hit subscribe so you don't miss more stories about Steel City Outsiders and the institutional avant-garde. And if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. Let us know what you think. See you next time.